Welcome back to your favorite contracts podcast. My name is Tess Wilkinson-Ryan, and I'm here with my colleague Dave Hoffman at the University of Pennsylvania. Today, we're talking about what kind of promises you maybe don't have to keep, or if they're promises at all, in De Los Santos versus Great Western Sugar Company. Let's get started. Okay. We are recording, and today's case is De Los Santos versus Great Western Sugar Company. A 1984 Supreme Court of Nebraska, amazing tour de force, tour de force of both rhetoric and comprehensible facts. You know, yes, let's talk about the facts because this is a case in which I think we need to. It's it's real fact specific, and involves some trucking minutia that might not be easy to discern. Okay, just as a matter of full disclosure, I think we asked our teaching assistants for help in thinking about what are the cases that are either the best or the most confusing for you guys. Um, And and they gave us a list. And it's pretty obvious that this is not one of the best cases in the semester. And and so we're going to talk about it. I don't think either either of us are, are super excited in the way that maybe we would have been excited to talk about Tongish because of the intellectual garden of delights, mm-hmm. or we were certainly excited to talk about Jacob, parentheses S, and Young, apostrophe S, parentheses mm-hmm. S. Yeah. But okay. Yes. Because of the amazing writing. This case is neither well-written nor interesting, and yet it's it does contain a whole, hard things. It's Sorry, basically a whole case about what's probably a drafting error. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, all right. So let's just let me give the factual summary because it's probably you know I'll I'll just get that out of the way. So you've got um, the plaintiff who is a contractor um, who hauls stuff. He hauls lots of different things, but he makes a contract with uh, Great Western in which he's going to haul beets for Great Western, and they're obviously sugar beets, which is why it's Great Western Sugar Company. And the contract basically says that the, the plaintiff, De Los Santos, is going to haul such tonnage of beets as may be loaded by the company from piles at the beet receiving stations of the company um, and unload them wherever the company wants them to go. And the, and the contract is a, a little bit uh, more than uh, five months long. So it's, it's during the, the, beet, the well-known Nebraska beet hauling season. Beet season. Do, you mind if I, do you mind if I read the term in question? No, I don't mind Language at all. comes up so often. Yeah. In the case, not in life. The contractor, i.e. the plaintiff, shall transport in the contractor's trucks such tonnage of beets as may be loaded by the company, i.e. the defendant, from piles at the beet receiving stations of the company and unload said beets at such factory or factories as may be designated by the company, the term of this contract shall be from October 1st, 1980 until February 15th, 1981. That's the term we're fighting about. Yeah, yes, although to be fair, the contractor also promised some other things. So right. the contractor promised he would get insurance, he would have some modifications done to his trucks. I've always assumed that he put like large beat looking structures on the back of his trucks that made them seem particularly beatish. However, that might just be not true. Um, and he's going to get all the required certifications in order to get to haul agricultural produce. Yeah, so yeah. he makes some promises to be able food. to... Yeah. yeah, to be a food hauler. He makes, yeah. 
he makes the sort of the, the downstream promises that one needs in order to be a, a sort of a registered uh, food hauler. And we know something else about the arrangement here, because we know something we know, and we know that De Los Santos, the trucker, knows that the sugar company also has similar arrangements with other truckers. Correct. Which turns out to be a fact that the court is very interested in. I think I would agree with that characterization precisely. Great. Okay. And so then historically, what, what happens? So... Um, They're two months in. Two months in. So we're now in, in, in December. early December. Yep. Yes. And Great Western Sugar Company calls De Los Santos up and says, we don't need your services any longer. No more beets for you. That's right. Do not haul any of our beets. Was it because De Los Santos was a bad beet halter? Did he, did he bruise the beets? Did he, did he de-sugar them for some particular reason? <laughs> not to our knowledge. Did he, did he say bad words to the beats? Did he make them feel bad about their, their beatness? I don't think he said bad words to anybody. In fact, he was a perfect hauler of beats. Yeah. He the kind of hauler of beats that you'd want to, you'd want to hire this guy to haul even your radishes. Yes. And what he says is, <laughs> I'm not talking about root vegetables anymore. <laughs> what he says is, I'm not saying I get to haul all the beets. I'm saying I am entitled to continue to haul until all the beets have been transported and some of your beets remain unhauled. Well, he's also saying that he had to sell his specialized beet trucks at a loss. And of course, he'd held himself ready to perform so he didn't take other contracts. He says, I've really been hurt by the fact that you didn't let me fulfill the essence of our bargain. Although, yeah, but that's just a matter of proving the damages. That's not going to be so much, or I mean, that's not. I'm just trying to make us feel better for his side of the case before we're going to probably make fun of his side of the case, right? Oh, well, I feel bad for him. Okay, good. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, think about it. You walk around with your beat trucks, like the other people on the street are making fun of you. His understanding is that he had a deal through February 15th, 1981. Right. It's December 1st, 1980. I will say that like, Many law students have a problem with the, with the result of this case, which yeah. I take it is there's no contract, no contract, no long-term contract. What there are instead is every time he shows up, the company gets to decide to put the beats on his truck. And if they put the beats on his truck, he gets paid for that delivery. Yep. It's a series of spot contracts. Yep. And I think many law students say like, well, what was the point of the, of this whole rigmarole about requiring him to do this stuff and have it in writing and say it's until February 1st, if you didn't mean those things. Yes. And so one way to think about it is it's a drafting her. And the other way to think about it is it's exploitation by great, the big, by big mm. beet sugar. Yes. Um, big beet, as everyone knows, is always looking to, to sneak these contractors into bad deals. And so the contractor presumably gave them a little bit of a better price because they thought they were going to be in a long-term relationship because the contractor is just a salt of the earth person. But big beet knows that actually there's something called the illusory contract doctrine and you can walk away from your contracts if they lack consideration. So let's do talk about this consideration issue because it feels like this is not what should be a consideration case. It does feel that way. Yep. Because usually, so, so many of our students will have, and in fact, many of the students who read this case at all, will have recently read a, case, a consideration case involving basically some family member promising to give money to some other family member. Yep. 
right? And those are cases in which the court says, we're not going to enforce that promise. There's no consideration because what's the bargain here? What's the People exchange? aren't in it for any kind of bargain. This is just some kind of gift, right? Right. right. And there's no way that either De Los Santos or Great Western Sugar Company are in this deal for gift giving. You don't haul beets for love. Correct. This is a service for money transaction. <laughs> Regular commercial transaction. And if you think that consideration is a doctrine that basically comes out of the Industrial Revolution in order to make... Wait, do you think that? I'm just excited to hear what you're going to say now. This oh. is great. <laughs> that basically it just like ratifies the purpose of contracts as, as sort of financial instru instruments. These people are doing that exact thing. These are people right. in the middle of a stream of commerce exactly participate in making a deal in order to get the best price on be for beets. Yeah. Right? This is not some, this is not some like, you know, sort of mm, idiosyncratic family deal on the side. This is like a regular commercial transaction between two repeat players. And it's obviously the case that if you were to ask De Los Santos, why did you go out and buy the, mod the special beet modifications on your truck? Why did you go out and get insurance? Why did you forego those, the, the, the radish hauling contract? He would say, I was motivated by their counterperformance to give the me money. a shot at, by money, by money, by the promise to be able to go give it a shot. Yes. And, and if you asked Great Western, why did you agree to, to allow him to pick up? You know, they would say, well, part of it was he promised to modify his trucks. He promised to show up. He promised to, to haul with reasonable diligence. And so and if you like think about price. Oh, yeah, and we liked his price, right? And if we so if we think about the whole point of consideration doctrine, are the promises mutually engaged? Are the parties yes. Yes. mutually engaged in counterpromising? That that rationale is satisfied. Yes, and so and then the, and then the, the court's like, yeah, but actually, you know, Great Western only seemed to promise. It it makes a promise, but it's not a real promise. It's an illusory promise. It's a promise that doesn't actually have content. I promise to do something for you if I want to. And, and the thing that's hard about that is the, the law seems to say, even if a reasonable, normal person, I'm sorry, a normal person would be motivated by that promise by Great Western, a reasonable person would have looked with sort of like a, like a, a squinty eye and said like, I don't know that you're really promising that I can do this through February. Are you really, what would happen if there's no beats to pick up? Do I get paid? And so... And, and what's hard about the case is, so we just recorded, I don't know what the, the order that people are going to listen to this. We just recorded this, the Jacobs and Young case. You're probably going to listen to it later in the semester. And there we have this case in which Cardozo, who's also the, the writer of Lucy the Lady Duff, says, you know, contracting parties should be behaving in good faith and we should be assuming that they do and the law should sort of stand behind good faith intuitions. And here, the law does the exact opposite. Yes. That, you know, the court's like, well, looks like great Western. You got them. You got them this time. I'm going to actually read the court's language here because I think it it's helpful to unpack it a little bit. Great. So the court says, it is apparent that the right of the defendant to control the amount of beats loaded onto the plaintiff's trucks was in effect a right to terminate the contract at any time. And this rendered the contract as to its unexecuted portions void for want of mutuality. Want Let's just explain what that means, means first. Of, yeah. Yeah, okay. Want of mutuality means lack of consideration. The unexecuted portions are the parts that you haven't, that haven't happened yet. What's going to happen in the future? 
It is okay. So let me start with beats. It is apparent that the right of the defendant to control the amount of beats loaded onto the plaintiff's trucks. Now, that let's can we talk about that for a second because it's kind of the case that like everyone in possession of stuff controls the how much of that stuff is going to get loaded onto various trucks. I control the extent to which I'm going to load my possessions onto a U-Haul at any given time. And since I've been stuck in this house for five months, that time might be really soon. Why here would the defendant's right to control the amount of beats loaded onto De Los Santos's trucks operate as a right to terminate the contract? So the deal says, we, Great Western Sugar, are going to pay you based on how much beats we put on your trucks. But we're not promising to ever allow you to do any beat hauling at all. Exactly. So they say, so the court's basically saying, insofar as they could have loaded zero beats, voila. Insofar as the parties have contracted for a spectrum? No. A time. They contracted for a time, but not for an amount. No, sorry, but I mean, but I mean a range, a range oh. of amounts. They've con- oh. And if you could see, if this was video for our listeners, you'd see that I'm holding my hands up to show range. Yeah. They're That's, wide apart. Right? I see yeah. it now. Yes. Mm-hmm. The, the idea is the court basically says the range in this term includes zero. And as long as it includes zero, we say that's basically just a right to sort of push the, to sort of like push the button and say no deal. Is that how you read it? Um, uh, I don't think they're saying necessarily. I mean, I think there's one way to read what they're doing in early December is they say, you know what, we're not going to have any beats from you between now and February. And the court basically says, yeah, you can, you can make that choice. Zero can be an answer from now until the end of the contract term because you never promise to make any particular amount available. And the thing that, I mean, there's two things to say about that. The first one is, you know, is that the right reading of the contractual exchange? Yes. And the, the counter argument is this Wood versus Lady Duff case. And, and also, of course, it's going to be Jacobson Young later, which is this is just not what the parties really intended. And what we should do is we should use the facts of the case to try to help us understand what they really intended. And here, he did promise all of this stuff that kind of implied that he was going to have something to haul. He fixed up the trucks. He bought the insurance. That is evidence that he anticipated, and they anticipated because they made him make those promises, that there was going to be something to haul. If zero was on the range as an acceptable answer, why would they make him uh, do the insurance buying and the truck modification. And the, the Uniform Commercial Code, which doesn't apply to this case because this is not a sale of goods, but rather right. a hauling of goods. Right, it's a service. The Uniform Commercial Code says, if you have something called a requirements contract, which means I'm going to take from you or deliver to you everything up to my requirements or your requirements. I'm gonna um, have an undefined supply, but I'll, I'll satisfy your needs. Pretty um, obvious. The great, the great example is um, a gas station says, I would like to buy gas from the supplier, fill my tank um, every time. But I don't know how much it's going to take to fill my tank, but you have to fill my tank every week. That's a requirements contract. The Uniform Commercial Code says, under those circumstances, if you're selling goods under conditions where the amount is not defined, you have to look for reasonable estimates based on past practice. 
You can't go to zero. You have to buy a reasonable amount based on past practice. Now, the question that I've always asked students is, what would have happened had this been not a hauling of beads contract, but a sale of beads contract? What would have happened if the Uniform Commercial Code would have gotten, what would have happened if the Uniform Commercial Code would apply? And the answer is, it's not obvious it'd be different. And, the, and why? Because the, and this is sort of the fact that you focused on earlier, because De Los Santos, because it is in fact the case, and De Los Santos knows it's the case, this is not an exclusive dealing relationship. And the Uniform Commercial Code says, in order to find a way to make a number out of nothingness, the parties have to be kind of bound to each other. Because that, that's sort of the, the, the cost of having an exclusive relationship is, you can't exploit each other. But if De Los Santos knows he's not in an exclusive relationship with Great Western, he knows that they can exploit him. And that's, that's sort of a key fact about their relationship is he knows that there are other beat haulers out there and therefore he's sort of on notice that maybe they get to the hauling station first. Yeah. And so it's not unfair to give him no deal. Great. So this is exactly how I teach this case. And I, and maybe what I should, maybe what we should, maybe the question that we should ask that I don't typically ask in class, which is maybe a mistake I'm thinking now is is that right that having no exclusivity actually means you have no sense of how this contract is going to unfold? Right? So basically what the courts and the, rest, and the restatement has a similar outputs requirements rule, right? The UCC says, if it's an exclusive deal that just said that with an unspecified quantity, we're going to say you parties can figure out what that is. Right. But if it's not exclusive, it's, if it's, if there's three truckers all with basically concurrent contracts with great Western sugar, this sounds like the beginning of like an algebra problem from ninth from ninth grade, or like an LSAT problem, or like an LSAT problem. What great memories those were! Oh, geez. The if that's the case, then is it really is it really true that none of those three trucker, none of those three trucking companies can possibly have sort of um, fleshed out into expectations about what this deal looks like? And and now I sort of regret not pushing that previously because that doesn't seem right. Doesn't seem I right can think of all manner of situations in which you have, in which among, among other things, because of the relationships that you have with the, with the people involved. I mean, I'm guessing that these people are all, for example, Nebraska companies, right? Yeah, but they're part of a, my guess is De Los Santos maybe even has knowledge about the capacity for hauling that the other companies have, right? Has knowledge right. of how many beats, Great Western typically has a need for. Looking at last year's beat production, it's not like it varies tremendously year by year. I mean, you know, it might be there's some beat harvest problem, but there's no beat harvest problem discussion in the facts. So we sort of have to assume this year looked like last year, this year's beats look like last year's beats, everything the same. He did nothing wrong, but then they say, ah, you know, you're out of luck. And it's a bit of a Lucy with the football kind of feeling to, to the case. I'm trying to think if I could think of a similar, of like a more, um, of a more intuitive and and like a uh, fact pattern that would work here. The only one I could think of was something for like babysitting services, maybe. Um, but then that seems the problem with babysitting services. They're so personal that you can imagine different, lots of reasons why you might stop using a particular babysitter, but yeah. yeah. Dog walking services, maybe. Yeah. Uh, cases in which you, in which you have a deal and the, the, and the, the, um, the service provider knows that there's a couple concurrent deals, but then the service provider might rightly ask, listen, I basically know that you have, you know, three people, all of whom have part-time jobs who sometimes 
engage in dog walking services for you. I know that your dog needs 21 walks a week. And, and you've said, you've given me dates during which we have a deal. So why are you calling and telling me that we have no deal anymore? I mean, the case is tough. So, you know, if you want the holding of the case, the holding of the case is where the parties are not in an exclusive relationship and the party knows that they're not in an exclusive relationship and they don't set an amount, um, then it's not breach of contract to, to sort of set the amount to be zero to refuse to allow them to pick up for the remainder of the contract term. And the reason is lack of mutuality of, of exchange, which is also called lack of consideration. And if you tweak any of those, so, you know, the, the, the obvious like law school exam question is, what if it's exclusive? I'm sorry, what if it's not exclusive, but De Los Santos doesn't know it? And, you know, then you sort of say to yourself, well, was it knowledge that, was it knowledge that mattered? Um, and, you know, what if he reasonably could have known but didn't subjectively know that it wasn't an exclusive relationship? Maybe, you know, last year it was an exclusive relationship. Um, and this year he didn't read the contract, but he could have. Um, and you know, for, for me that, I mean, the case is a hard case cause I don't, it doesn't feel like the other consideration cases. It's an odd way to introduce the requirements contract concept or this idea that you have these output contracts without numbers attached. And basically every other time we see one of these contracts in the case book, which we see them repeatedly, they're, they're all over the place. The court manages to find a way to give a remedy. And here, even though I have a very strong suspicion that De Los Santos is a less sophisticated party than, than Big Beat, and even though I, I do think he's got very high relational specific um, costs that he's spent, the court gives nothing. And it apparently would give nothing even if his suit would have been merely to recover his out-of-pocket like truck costs. I mean, when, it's an interesting question, right, to try teaching this as a promissory estoppel case. Yeah. Exactly. Is there a claim, especially where he has been led to rely, specific, right, right, Great Western Sugar wants him to rely by fitting his trucks out in a particular way, leads, yes, and le leads to, of course, the, the problem would be that there's no promise. There's what no the court promise. is saying here is there's not a promise. If your promise is I'll do it if I want to, that's not a promise. And the, the thing about that, of course, is that the promises that we see in these cases are never so as explicit as that. I mean, every time I've taught illusory promising, I've often said, I'll do it if I want to. Well, everyone's like, yeah, that's not a problem. I totally understand that's not a problem. That feels like, you know, yeah. I'll give you a reason if I want to, to your children. You know, it, it, it sort of is super clear. But in the actual cases, this feels really like a promise. And, it, you know, it is hard to say. I mean, this is a real law view about what promises are. Promises have to sort of commit you in a way to a concrete thing, and they don't take on any of the associated social meaning that the promise has. It is the case that most lay people, when they would hear this, would be like, of course they promise to let him you know, pick up reasonably. And this is a real moment where the law's version of the world and the lay people's version of the world really diverges. And so it's a tough case. It's a really, I mean, it's a, it's a hard case to teach, and it's a hard case to sort of understand why this is the rule. Well, and so let me ask you if you think <laughs> there's a piece of the drafting which raises a question every year, which says, which is the contractor shall transport in the truck such tonnage of beets as may be loaded by the company. Does that mean that if De Los Santos got the call and said, I'm ready 
and waiting with these beats that De Los Santos can say, yeah, but I'm out. Even though that language is clear, right? The other, the language, the, the language with respect to the sugar company's um, obligations says as, as such as may be loaded, right? Which is to say like, we get to decide how much we load. There's not that kind of language for De Los Santos, but the, yeah. Well. Right. I mean, I do, I do think that there's one way to read the case is that the, it's like a, a, a series, it's the court says this contract, even though it seems like a long-term contract is really a series of options that can be exercised yeah. only by great big, by great Western sugar. And if they exercise those options, De Los Santos would be in breach if he refused to perform. Right. So it's a series of acceptances. A series. It's a series of acceptances. And once they accept, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's he's, right. he's bound. Yeah. Right. He's bound. No, I mean, it's yeah. 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 And it's tough. That is a tough yeah. outcome. And, and part of it is, you know, do you think that they use shall, they, they should have used shall in both places. Is that what they meant? Did they, you know, do they mean may in both places or maybe, I mean, the really deep truth is it's probably very likely the great Westerns lawyered and they meant exactly this. You know, they meant to give themselves optionality, nothing better than optionality. If you're going to try to, um, you know, futz and maybe what they did is they had another deal with someone else, exact same price. December came. I mean, the, the majority of the beet harvest is over and they say that his competitor, you know, Hey, how about if we give you 10 cents less per beet? Why don't we renegotiate? Yeah. And the competitor but says, you yes, all the beats, but you got to do all the beats, right? Yep. You do all the beats. And so great Western wins. And it's a hard case for, I mean, it's a hard case if you're the kind of person who says that the law ought to fit with ordinary intuitions and the law ought to generally get to outcomes that seem ex ante and ex post fair. This is a case where you have to really have a view that like, well, maybe this is about teaching people a lesson about protecting themselves. Right. And the next time that, you know, De Los Santos is of the world, you know, go to contract, right. they'll think about this. Say, case. Yes. Right. Yes. They're going to be like, well, I know what the Supreme Court in Nebraska is going to say. They're going to say this is an illusory contract. So I better protect myself more. Right. But the way you might, right. But the, but the question you want to ask about what they actually intended is did great Western pay for this option? Enough. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like pay yeah. for it to be an option rather than for right. it to be a, right? Did they pay right. for the, did they pay for their, was, did they pay for the, what's it called if you can get out? Put? Optionality? Oh, the put. Option. Let's just say, let's just say put. Say option. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, this is probably one of those other things. So. Yeah. Yeah. No. If we, we had, would. like, if we had actually, like, high quality editing of these, yes. we'd probably edit this part out, but. Yeah. No, we would. Go. No, we would. We'd have, like, a, a intermission. Exactly. For music. Yeah. A music, yeah. If you don't think that Great Western Sugar Company promised a little, priced this in, the fact that they were going to be allowed to cancel, or that De Los Santos priced it in, that might make you concerned about the outcome here. Right. So, like, if you were writing a brief on behalf of Great Western Sugar, a great fact would be that last year he got paid less per hauling deal. And this year we paid him 25% more, but you know what? we retained the ability to walk away from him at any time. That would be an amazing fact. Now, the fact that it's not in the case suggests it's not true. Yep. Um, and it's an interesting question for law students. Like, how much can you play with these cases? How much can you play with the facts you don't see? The, 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 it, is in, it is the case that the, the opinion does not mention a fact that would have been extremely helpful to Great Western Sugar. It would have made us feel really good about the result. And I think it's therefore fair to believe that that is not true. 
Like, I don't think it is true that Great Western paid more for this option. Given how formal the language is of the term, yeah. you have to think that this case comes out making the Great Western Sugar Company's council feeling great. Oh, they feel so good. Right. This came out exactly how they hoped. If that's they, they are like our said, long, said our long, said factories. Yeah. Like our long laid plans have come to harvest and we oh. have now. Yeah. <laughs> Take it. They've taken root. They've taken root. Um, you know, they've borne a sweet fruit. <laughs> it's a tough case. That's what can I've got. Say, can I say one more thing about this case that comes up a ton for my students? And so maybe this, maybe having it be um, in a recorded form will have yeah. value. Yeah. This case talks about mutuality. Yeah. In fact, I would like, I don't know that this case actually talks at all about consideration. Do you, if you have um, it digitally, you can tell me. I do, but I... So uh, let me keep talking let, about me, let me try to do that while you talk. Yep. Right. So what I end up saying to students is that mutuality and consideration are doctrinally the same thing. That mutuality is a way of talking about whether or not there's a bargain for, or whether or not there's a bargain in this sort of consideration sense. It uses the word consideration. It does? Yeah. Uh, it uses it in the middle of the quote paragraph, speaking generally, and then it uses it where in the in the long paragraph that starts where promissory agrees, the agreement does not furnish the consideration necessary to require the promissory to accept the services. Yes. Okay, great. The interesting thing here is that, they're t is that they're, the references to the doctrine are about mutuality, and then they're using the word consideration, at least in the, in the quote paragraph, in consideration of the act, almost in a way, that, anyway. It, I, find it, I find it a little bit unclear, not imprecise, about the, way, about the relationship between mutuality and consideration. My only point to students on this is doctrinally, these mean the same thing. But sometimes when courts talk about mutuality, because mutual or mutuality has a meaning and a set of mm, sort of implicit reference for most people, mutuality can be confusing and it leads the courts and it leads the parties down some strange paths when they get confused in later cases. They yes. say, well, wait, our obligations aren't mutual. I had to do this one thing and you didn't have to do it back. Yep. That's really like smart. That's what, and it seems like that's what mutual means, but that's not actually, but, but mutuality is not what's required. It's not in the sense of, in the sense of a sort of a vernacular. Right. Or common, or, or a common equal. meaning. Of, Shared. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, share. Reciprocal. Reciprocal. What Recipro they really just mean by this is at the very moment of formation. Exactly. Did both parties make a real promise exactly. or an undertaking exactly. toward each other. Exactly. And the court said, even though it sounded like it, and even though you might have thought it, actually, it's not true. Yes. You know, Great Western promised nothing. It, it, it said the words, but it didn't. It didn't say the right words exactly. And I mean, I think if you find this case distasteful, which I do, I mean, I, I, don't, I mean, I don't like the result. I don't like the way it's written. I find the whole thing tough. I guess what I would say is it's a, it's a, it's a pretty limited number of cases that are going to look like this. So again, you need, you need a non-exclusive, but the party has to know it. And you have to have a promise that has this sort of peculiar set of qualities 
And, you know, who would enter that? Well, probably it's very short-term supply contracts because in the long-term supply contract, you would require something like uh, reciprocity. And so it's, it's a relatively small set, but every case in this set does end up feeling kind of exploitative. And that's what I end up feeling about the case is that it just is the law yep. standing behind exploitation in the name of, you know, um, teaching them a lesson. Caveat emptor, exactly. Caveat, caveat emptor, exactly. teach you a lesson, next time do better. It's not like you could, it's not, it's not the case that De Los Santos was coerced or manipulated in some, in some way they couldn't possibly have anticipated, right? If right. you read this and you are De Los Santos and your goal is beat hauling, right? If that's what you want, is consistent work. Yep. It does seem like that would be a great time for you to speak up and be like, wait a minute, is there some minimum here? Right. On the other hand, you can imagine, especially if you've had a whole bunch of conversations or if you have some sense of what the normal expectations are, that you don't speak up because you're trying to just get on with your business. I mean, you know, we don't know the real backstory here. And, you know, it's, it's pretty plausible that there's two different backstories. One of them is there's all kinds of oral conversations in which he's told, we can walk away from you at any time. Right. And he knows it. But he, they can't bring that into evidence because the contract prohibits for reasons that we'll talk about later in the semester, sort of this like oral sets of promises. And, and so he's like, he's the one behaving badly by making something out of something everyone else knew. Everyone knew that if you have all of these beat haulers, you might not get the deal. And that's okay because next season you will. That's possible. And the other possibility is there's some really bad conduct in which they're, you know, they're trying to get him for reasons that are un disclosed in the record but are not good reasons nefarious reasons maybe they're giving the the contract to the the son-in-law or their daughter-in-law or maybe you know they're maybe they're racist in ways or maybe they're xenophobic we don't know we don't really know anything about the relationship and that's also not in the record and so we have kind of like this really weird case that the party's motivations just don't seem to make sense yep who would do this yep and we have a, a contract that that is interpreted by the court in the most sort of superficial legalistic way possible. Yep. And we have a results that's like, yeah, I guess it's a pretty narrow target that we're aiming at. And, and the result is it's on our most confusing list. And so that's why we had to have a, a podcast about it. All right. I think that's it. Awesome. Los Santos. Thanks everyone. <laughs>